Henry Handsome was a larger-than-life outlaw cowboy. At least that's how the legend goes. Henry Handsome Lived and Died examines the creation, evolution, proliferation, dissemination, and degradation of American folklore. Through 30 different short stories, the character, vague idea, false memory, misattributed anecdote, or influence of the titular Henry Handsome does everything from change the course of American media to sculpt modern-day knowledge of manifest destiny. Together, the collection represents the stories that create and define a culture, how those stories are told, and if they ever were to begin with, and if any of that matters at all. Each story was written, recorded, narrated, and produced by me, Elliot Matson. If you'd like to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash henryhandsome. But for now, saddle up and enjoy the story. Henry Handsome Lived and Died. Story number one. Carson Becker got abducted by aliens. Carson Becker believed every word about Henry Handsome. He'd read stories about the man in school, as a kid in picture books, saw a spaghetti western flick that one time his mama let him. He knew one author said Henry actually died on the Oregon coast at the hands of the devil, and that another said the outlaw was the devil himself. Carson wanted it all to be true because it gave him a bright north star in this bleak world. He'd seen too much on the news about boys just a few grades older than him getting blown to smithereens in Tonkin, Hue, and Cambodia. While he might not have stood behind the cause, the guilt he wasn't out there with him weighed upon him like a ten-gallon hat. Because instead of being out there, he was here, in Settlersville. And truthfully, he wouldn't have rather been anywhere else. People left their vacation rentals and poolsides of Palm Springs and made the hour-and-a-half-long trek to Settlersville for a reason. They wanted to be transported back to the Old West, stroll through the mesmerizing Californian chaparral. Buy cowboy hats and bolo ties and stained glass dream catchers. And some just wanted to get shit-faced to Cookie and Barclay's saloon more power to them. For Carson, it was still the closest thing he'd ever get to the Old West, and he still considered it a miracle his mama let him take the job, what with his condition and all. As he brought guests down Main Street and watched them peruse the verbose plaque, imagining what could have been but almost certainly never was, Carson didn't have to struggle to maintain enthusiasm. From the beginning of summer, Mr. Pincher told Mrs. Becker that Carson was his best employee. It was the only time Carson had been the best at anything in his life. A tin sign hung in the gift shop window with a gunslinger on it that said, Enjoy yourself. You're in Settlersville. I ain't gonna kill you. Carson always obliged. Carson led the gaggle of tourists further along drinking in that sweet sunscreen aroma you get when sweat mixes with desert air. He walked backwards as the sun chafed his skinny neck and his once white bucket hat collected more of the blown dry earth. Because he had to walk backwards so much, Carson knew how many paces each section of the tour was. From the plaque to Cookie and Barclays was 87. The glass blowing studio to the gift shop was 64. And so on and so forth. I said he memorized it, not me. What's over there? Asked a sweet young mother with that popular fair faucet hairdo every woman with a bit of affluence seemed to be wearing. Carson squinted past the corrugated tin sign of the glass-blown studio down a winding path out of town. He'd forgotten his sunglasses like he did every day. His mama was always trying to yank his head out of the clouds, but it stayed floating up there like a lost balloon. 
Folks always asked about the path, and it gave Carson goosebumps. He loved a little foreshadow and showmanship. What it led to was in fact part of the tour, just not yet. And although it was Carson's favorite part of the whole town, he sometimes wished it was his own little secret. Settlersville was anything but a secret once upon a time. Jimmy Wakely, Doris Page, Carolina Cotton, and some other Hollywood Western who's who's invested in their own slice of the San Bernardino Mountains, hoping to compete with Roy Rogers' newly minted Pioneer Town. They swore it wasn't a copycat, and Settlersville had plenty of unique offerings. In truth, they'd brokered a deal with Louis L'Amour to turn a slew of his books into movies and television shows, all filmed on location right here. But when the author pulled out, they were left with miles of desert and a fake ghost town. Lucky for them, the craving for Western media would keep soaring on through the 50s and early 60s, and there was plenty of room for two kitschy throwback tourist traps. The latter half of the decade had in so far proven to be a different story, though. Tastes were changing, and the noble cowboy was replaced in the zeitgeist by the tough-as-nails detective or the invulnerable superhuman. Mr. Pincher's job was to bring in revenue, and so he made the decision to find some, shall we say, alternative clientele. The kind of folks John Wayne and Gene Autry would have a grand old time beating the piss out of and spitting their bourbon on. More and more hippie groups started renting out the little cotton motel at the end of Main Street over by the pony stable and the country breakfast nook. These free lovers and draft dodgers weren't Mr. Pincher's first choice, no sir, but if they were paying him and he could balance his books with that payment, he looked the other way at the grass smoking and topless daydreamers. Sometimes he looked, though. For the most part, their presence wasn't a problem. They'd spend nights and sometimes days deep in the desert on vision quests or drug trips. One group offered Mr. Pincher something called LSD, and even years later on his deathbed, the shy, stocky, pigeon-toed man wondered what it would have been like if he'd had the balls to try it. One sticky summer afternoon, not dissimilar to the one Carson led his tour through, Mr. Pincher noticed clanging and banging in the distance. When he ventured about a half mile out of town, he happened upon a newly erected structure that looked more like a vision of the future than the humble historical quaintness of Settlersville. Bright white with red trim, the eerie cylinder was capped by a dome and wore a wraparound porch like the rings of Saturn. The beaded sweat on Mr. Pincher's lips evaporated in rage. What the hell is going on here? The hippies stopped working and calmly smiled at the man in the sunlight. They were all women, with flowers in their long hair and loose-fitting white blouses that gave their naked skin beneath a milky aura. None of them said a word, and he didn't know their names, so all Mr. Pincher could do was stupidly blubber another repetition of the same question. All the women looked at one another, and then one floated around the structure. When she reappeared, she had a tall, sinewy man in tow. He wore long hair and a shaggy beard, a crown of cactus flowers, and his red tan birthday suit. The man's lack of modesty made Mr. Pincher uncomfortable. Those piercing blue eyes, oddly attractive smile, and calmly charismatic demeanor made him even more so. Ah, what can I do for you, my good man? Mr. Pincher avoided looking at the man's pecker, but his only other option was a treasure trove of other ill-covered female bitch and parts. Uh, what... Uh, what is this, if I may ask? I need an answer now. The man placed a long-fingered hand on Mr. Pincher's wet shoulder and leaned over him. He spoke with a friendly inflection. 
Nothing of your concern. Well, see... Huh? It, it is my concern. If you're building some kind of space-age structure on Settlersville land, it'll disturb the other guests. And, 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 uh, how do I explain it? There won't be any need to explain, said a fair-skinned maiden to the man's left. It was as if they all shared one hive mind. She's right, said the man without mission to beat, and no guests to disturb, and no earth to live on anymore. <laughs> In due time, friend. Mr. Pincher shrugged off the hand and dug his boots in the sand. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you? Is the Cotton Motel reserved under your name or one of theirs? He fanned a hand toward dispersing fairytale females. Look, let's all chill out. We have overstayed our welcome. You can say that again on this planet. Now, <laughs> this sucked the vinegar out of Pincher right quick and left him with piss instead. We only need a little more time. The man placed his hands on his glistening chest and then held him out like Jesus on the cross. I don't know who made the reservation, but if you need more payments, don't fret. You'll be compensated. And if you need a name for the interim, they call me the Savior. He bowed and a hot wind rattled the shining structure. The Savior of these great lands. These people. Maybe even you. If you're keen on it, my name is Henry Hanson. Mr. Pincher ignored the option to shake the man's hand. He inched back and a halo of sunlight framed Henry's angelic, handsome face. Funny. Real funny. You think you're some kind of uh, vigilante? I don't know what's going on, but I'd wager there's something mighty illicit about it. And who are these women? These girls? Some of them were pregnant. One had a little baby boy. Henry's sanguine expression didn't waver. You can think of me how you like. They think of me as... Yeah, the savior. Got it. I'm going to have a word with my boss, Mr. Uh, handsome. Henry said, <laughs> We all will be. Sooner or later. Mr. Pincher waddled his way back to town. I reckon the men both knew they were in a stalemate. Henry'd continue building his spacecraft... Mr. Pincher wouldn't call his bosses because he didn't know what the hell to say and didn't want to get in trouble with Hollywood celebrities. Plus, the group continued to pay their motel bills, and it was the most consistent income Settlersville had seen in some time. A blind eye sees a whole lot clearer if money's in front of it. And I ain't exaggerating when I say it was months of this. Well, maybe it was weeks, don't hold me to it. Building, pacing, chanting, what sounded like raucous fornication under starry nights. Mr. Pincher got to know one of the girls, the one with the little baby boy. She was in charge of paying the motel bill. And she was pleasant enough, and when he'd give little Carson a lollipop, the kids squealed with elation. Not as much as those women every night, of course. Boy, howdy, Mr. Pincher couldn't imagine. I, on the other hand, have an easier time if I try to. The girl matter-of-factly told Mr. Pincher they were constructing a vessel to commune with visitors from Saturn, which explained the celestial design of the building. She said that Henry Handsome had orchestrated the whole thing and had a direct line with the alien beings and it was almost time. You'll see, she said. Mr. Pincher smiled at Carson and tried his damnness not to look at the girl's all but exposed breasts. Ascendance is nigh. When construction halted, Mr. Pincher suspected the big reveal was drawing closer than ever. Each night he'd drink alone at Cookie and Barclays long after they were closed. 
pouring himself rail drinks and staring out the window into a dark mirage. And then one day they were gone. Save for a few stragglers. Mr. Pincher later read in the newspaper about the arrests. Apparently, communing with aliens also included light drug trafficking, armed robbery, and counterfeiting. Looked like the only thing this Henry Handsome character would be ascending to was the gallows. Mr. Pincher was relieved to see Vicky and Carson among the remaining group. She had a baffled look about her, like someone had doused her with a bucket of ice water. Whatever spell the girls were under was broken. Vicky said her folks lived nearby and would help her get back on her feet. Mr. Pincher assured that he'd offer assistance whenever he could, too. The Saturnaritron, as Mr. Pincher learned the odd craft was called, stood vacant in the dry heat for a long spell. That's a funny thing about the desert. It preserves relics that oughtn't be preserved and that nobody ever asked it to. But nobody gives enough of a shit to take them down, anyhow. One day a boy asked about it on a tour. Mr. Pincher thought, what the hell, and led the group outside Main Street and explained the whole story. Then the darnest thing happened. The next group asked about it. And the next. Said they'd heard about it from friends, friends of friends, the news. Settlersville started booming once again. But not because of a bunch of Wild West props and overpriced mechanical bull rides. It was for the mysterious outskirts UFO building that let you connect with outer space. The novelty of Settlersville would never be lost on Carson Becker. Yet the Saturnaritron glowed as brightly as its namesake planet. It captivated Carson, drew him closer with its strange anachronistic design and lore. His mom had never told him he was conceived in that very building and asked Mr. Pincher to keep his mouth shut, too. Her son had no recollection of his early upbringing. When Carson asked his mama about fleeting memories, she'd often make up something or another. He was keen enough to know she was lying, but not enough to know what about. See, even after Henry Hansen was apprehended, Vicky could still see him every time she looked at Carson. I think that when Carson told her about the eerie gravitational pull of the Saturnaritron, somewhere deep down she hoped that one day they'd all be reunited again. She told Carson he was special, and folks like me would say Carson had a bum ticker. But if you want some more clarification, he was born with heart problems which led to an arrhythmia and the implant of a pacemaker. He got pulled out of play dates, benched on sports, got out of the draft, Hell, James Bond movies were deemed too much for him, so he never saw one. It isolated the boy, made him a whipping post for bullies and a pariah of his country. He could show him his scar, sure. He could explain with medical accuracy the ins and outs of his procedure and why it precluded him from partaking in most activities. He could show him a drawing he made on a summer day instead of playing baseball like a normal kid. But he was convincing himself with that mumbo-jumbo as much as everybody else. His heart beat steadily if he managed it. If he placed his hand on his mama's chest and his own, they felt the same. He wanted to be normal. He was normal, goddammit. Most of the time. As he walked backwards exactly 211 paces from Main Street to the Saturnaritron, the beach quickened in a feeling he could only describe as metallic cut through his marrow. Every damn time. There was something about that space-age-looking hunk of junk. And that something could be the key to him living his best life. A life of adventure, of intrigue, of legend. His pulse vibrated with every step. To Carson, it wasn't a symptom of anything wrong. It was validation of everything right. You folks ever talk to aliens? 
said Carson with that heightened intonation Mr. Pincher adored. He ascended the short spiral staircase to the ring porch of the Saturnartron. Well, on quiet summer nights, if you lie face up inside this building and look out the dome skylight, some say you can communicate with the entire galaxy. Is this where that cult committed a mass suicide or something? Said some smart-ass picking needles off a cactus to poke his brother with later. Carson had been instructed to divert such subjects. Nah, he said. That's all apocryphal. He winked at the folks. Mr. Pincher saw him do that once and wasn't too pleased. But Carson liked the extra mystique it gave the experience. His chest felt like it was biting aluminum and he never felt more alive. Anyway, have a look around. Really, soak it in. You won't find anything like this on Earth. Then we ought to head back to Mrs. Buckley where she'll teach you how to tie lassos. They make great gifts. And if you'd like to do an alien night meditation, that can be arranged back in town too. Carson hopped off the porch and went as far away from the building as he could while keeping the group in earshot. Let's say uh, 20 paces. He quietly hyperventilated, his heart slowed, and he ran soothing fingers along the vertical scar in the middle of his chest. For all he knew about the Saturn Artrom and how compelling it was, he'd never actually been inside. But he figured every tour he led only made his heart more resilient. The longer he stood on that porch each time, the better. It was training all summer long. It was telling him something. And maybe that bum ticker wanted to go inside and tell him more. That's how most days went for Carson Becker. Far as summer jobs go, I'd have taken this one over any I ever had. Been too long to remember what they were now. At the end of every Settlersville shift, Carson had to run the tour one more time. This time forwards, by himself. It was mostly so he could pick up errant gum wrappers or discarded water bottles, prep for the following day, and so on. His last stop was picking up his day's pay from Mr. Pincher at the front office. A meager stack of bills and coins along with an inexplicable lollipop. The evening rounds also afforded him the opportunity to be alone with his destiny. As night draped his dark blanket across the California desert, Carson moseyed along Main Street, past Cookie and Barclays, the glass-blown studio, the pony stables, the gift shop, the vending machines with old-time orange soda and sarsaparilla. The saloon hoedown echoed off tin roofs and swooped along wavy cactus arms. He walked through the middle of the dusty street like the head honcho of Settlersville, in a duel with his own quickly disappearing shadow. The Saturnartrom looked even more bizarre in these conditions. As the desert skyline took shape in the night's purple aura, the perfect dome stood in unsettling contrast to the jagged, natural edges of its surroundings. Carson got that same vibrant metallic tinge regardless. When he was alone, he felt it even clearer, deep in his marrow. Usually the only sounds accompanying Carson's patrol are his own crushed gravel footsteps and crickets, maybe an owl or the scurry of a rodent. Whatever it was, he knew what to expect. This night was different. He heard the whirring. Others who've experienced similar phenomena describe it as not quite a propeller and not quite a jet engine, but maybe more like a car struggling to start. A whole lot of help they are painting the picture. This whirring seemed to illuminate the building more along with each step Carson took. Louder and more thunderous. He looked back toward town where drunken tourists were too busy with their hootenanny to hear anything else. And now, after a summer spent pushing himself to move closer, the Saturn Artron pulled him instead. The dome cast a blue haze that only brightened. 
As Carson crept in, his heart pounded in his head. At first, he thought it was starlight or maybe reflections from Cookie and Barclays, but not even the saloon's best bottle of tequila glowed this bright. He cautiously ascended the circular porch and did a merry-go-round lap. His fingers slowly brushed the aluminum exterior, feeling every nook and cranny and spray paint bubble. When his skin grazed the metal, his body became a tuning fork of the heavens. He placed his right hand on the door and jangled the brass keys in his pocket with his left for a few minutes. The current sang through his body. About this time is when he'd usually turn back. Save a little more for the next night. Only there was no next night. This was it. All signs were telling him as much. He flattened his palm tighter against the door. The vibrations brightened in his chest. It was now or never. So what made him finally have the cojones to enter? Maybe he heard his name whispered by the desert. Maybe he saw his reflection wearing a crown of cactus flowers. Whatever straw that broke the camel's back made him insert the key into that lock, push the heavy rusted door, and go inside. A cavernous inhale made the space devoid of sound. The crescent moon peered through a tall, circular skylight framed by radial beams. Carson orbited the bluish light column and fanned his fingers through its silvery dust particles. His heart quickened as he lapped the interior, stepping on parquet flooring and meticulously arranged yoga mats. The dulcet whirs followed him round and around like shadows from another dimension. He knew you were supposed to lie down and stare at the ceiling. He'd heard bits and pieces of guest conversations about their experience in the vessel. Some pontificating about their place in the universe and newly resonant enlightenment. Others chalking the whole thing up to hippie bullshit and a nice nap. He'd asked his mama if she'd ever tried, and <laughs> she declined to see. He'd asked Mr. Pincher, and he just gave a faraway look like he was remembering a daydream. All he knew now was that his whole life, his heart had held him back from so many things, and now it was lighting the way. He lay supine on one of the blue foam rectangles, his arms sprawled wide, feeling the cold floor on either side. Carson looked at the moon for what seemed like hours, waiting for something to happen. His heart was beating so fast his bones were shaking. All he wanted was an answer. And that's the damnedest thing about answers, ain't it? They never seem to be around when you need them. Still, as he succumbed to the sad Nartrom's vacuous serenity, it was the closest thing he felt to normal in his entire life. He stared at outer space so long until it felt close enough to reach out and touch. He kept looking at nothing, and for the longest time, he didn't see anything until it looked back. The whirring and squeals sliced the air like twisted metal. Dust shook off creosotes. Pebbles tumbled from distant mesas. After years of slumber, the Savior's vision had awakened for a new chosen one. Carson clutched his chest and squinted into the hot wind pelting his face. Finally, this, this is what he was hoping for. Tears streamed from his eyes as cyclones spewed more dust through every screw hole. The ring porch of the Saturnartron began to oscillate and eventually revolve faster and faster until the building itself erupted from the dry ground. There was no hole or foundation, as if the entire structure had been simply placed upon the soil. From the skylight ignited a harsh, direct beam and Carson shielded his eyes. Extraterrestrial orchestral whines scorched the air like confetti in a fire. Carson's whole body stiffened and contorted as it hovered off the mat toward the skylight. He could feel the extreme power, 
the clarity, the energy, the affirmation that he was something truly special. He had no words. He had no screams. His dilated pupils were two circular domes communing with the universe. As the celestial beam caressed him, hot light soaked his periphery. His heartbeat quickened from a pulse to a gallop to a jackhammer to one constant tone. He felt the sparks in his veins. All this time, he could have played with the neighbors, could have watched action movies, could have played sports. He could have been the goddamn quarterback of the football team. His bones vibrated and his cells wrenched like they were hitched to horses pulling in all different directions. He wanted it. He wanted it more. He floated higher as the light glowed brighter. There was nothing wrong with him. If anything, now it was brighter than ever. Here was his answer, and it was glorious. Mr. Pincher had already gone to bed at this time. The next morning, he found it odd that Carson's wages and the lollipop were still sitting on his desk. As of late, his knees and hips were giving him trouble, but he managed to make the rounds, asking about the boy where he could. When he ventured from the main drag, he found Carson lying face up in the dirt, oddly ice cold in the hot California sun. His eyes were wide open and his chest was black as chimney soot. Doctors later found his pacemaker had all but disintegrated inside him, but they disagreed over if that had killed him or if the rock his skull landed on had. Mr. Pincher never forgave himself. Vicki Becker saw no use for burying her son's body. After all those years, seeing his lifeless corpse only confirmed one thing. His soul was gone, ascended to Saturn. Of course, there was no evidence of this. The Saturn Artrom stood where it had from the beginning and would continue to do so. Although, if you'd have asked Carson, which you'll have a hell of a time doing now, the building wasn't exactly 211 paces from Main Street anymore. Thanks for listening to Henry Hansom Lived and Died. If you'd like to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash henryhansom.